Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here and to sing with you and to open God's Word together. We're going to be in Psalm 51 this morning, so you can go ahead and turn there. We have been going through the book of Acts with Pastor Mike, and the point that we, where we're at in Acts, we have seen the beginning of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. His dramatic conversion is always a really cool thing to see because he was such a sinner before he started his ministry. He was persecuting the church. He was killing people. And then when he becomes a believer, it's this dramatic change and a really cool thing to see happen. What we're going to be looking at today is something that is maybe similar but happens in the opposite order. We're reading a psalm. It was written by David in his response to something that happened in David's life. David was a man after God's own heart. He was the king of Israel. He was a godly man. And then suddenly he participated in this very large sin. And Psalm 51 is written in response to that. It's written after David is confronted about his sin. And so if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read together Psalm 51, the entire, the entire chapter. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that transgressions, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Father, thank you for the psalm, for what it teaches us about you and about your mercy and about how we should respond to sin. Pray that we would honor you this morning as we, as we look at it more closely. 
pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you are familiar with the life of David, and you know something about him. He was king of Israel. He did quite a lot that was honorable to God with his life and in the way that he led Israel. But at this point in this psalm is when he had just committed a sin with Bathsheba. And it wasn't just a small sort of -of run-of-the-mill sin. This was a big deal. David had had an affair with Bathsheba. And she was pregnant. And in an effort to cover this up, he arranged to have her wife, Uriah, killed in battle so that... Husband. It's not that big of a sin. It's just different. So this was really bad. And Nathan, who was a prophet, had come in to confront David about this. And this is in 2 Samuel 12, and it's this this really interesting way that Nathan does it because he comes in and he tells his whole story. There's a rich man, there's a poor man. The rich man had all these sheep and all these possessions, and the poor man only had one little baby lamb, but he loved this lamb. He loved it so much it was like a daughter to him. And you can just imagine him and his lamb, right, like sitting on the couch at night, and he's just like, good lamb, right? He just loves this thing. The rich man is having a friend over for dinner. He's going to feed him. He doesn't want to feed him one of his own lambs because. And so he takes the poor man's lamb and serves this lamb for dinner. And David is all angry about this when he hears the story. That's not right. He needs to pay that man back fourfold. And Nathan, in this great climactic moment, points at him and says, it's you! It's you who've done this! You are the bad guy of this story. I don't know if anyone has ever pointed the finger at you like that and accused you of being the bad guy of whatever particular story. It is difficult to respond to sin well, isn't it? Especially when someone calls you out publicly. I feel like one of the most common reactions to sin is pure annoyance. Perhaps you felt that with your spouse or with your parents or with your friends. They bring up something and you roll your eyes. You're like, not this again? Seriously, again with this? You can imagine David like, Nathan, you couldn't have, you couldn't have done this in private? Like, what's the matter with you? You got to call me out in front of everyone? Like, we could have gone to some coffee shop, sat in a quiet corner, and you could have just told me. But instead, you're calling me out publicly. Like, this is how you decided to do this? I also feel like David could have responded by this, this over-the-top kind of repentance where he's the king of Israel, so uh, what am I going to do? How am I going to make up for this? I know we'll just sacrifice every animal in Israel, bring all the lambs, all the sheep. We're going to burn all of them to somehow make up for this great thing that I've done. But that's not how he responds. It's not what he does. He writes this psalm, as a response to being confronted with his sin. And we're going to have today five words, five words that summarize David's response to sin. And the goal is so that we would respond to our own sin in the exact same way. The first word is 
mercy. This is the first thing that David mentions. He's confronted with sin, and his response is not to look at his accuser and point out things that are wrong with him. It's not to look at himself and to somehow justify it. Well, I was, you know, if you think about it in just the right way, then it wasn't really that bad. No, 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 no. What he does is he looks to God and says, what I need is mercy that comes from the Lord. In fact, he asks for four different things in the first two verses that all kind of go together. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David realizes that his greatest need, first and foremost, is to be separated from his sin in God's eyes. He needs God's forgiveness, God's mercy. To blot it out is a common Old Testament expression. It means to, to, to wipe it out, to forget about it, so you can't even see it. And then we have these two similar kind of related verbs, wash and cleanse. As if he needed water to wash away the filth of sin. You ever been really dirty, like desperately in need of a bath or a shower? If you have children, it seems like they are constantly in that state. I don't know how. But I feel like going to the beast going to the beach is one of the ultimate examples of this. The sand at the beach. Does anyone else just hate sand? Sand is the worst, isn't it? It's coarse, it's rough, it's irritating, it gets everywhere. And I feel like when you're walking back from the water to the parking lot at the beach. Somehow it's a five-mile hike. I don't know why they decided to put the parking lot so far away, but you're walking back, and you see those little showers where you can, like, rinse your feet off afterwards, and it is the most beautiful oasis I have ever seen. Just finally, can I get this off of me? It's somehow everywhere. I just want to be clean again. And this is David's reaction to his sin. More than anything else, I just need to be clean again. I need to have this sin washed off me completely. I need to be cleansed, and that only comes from God. David needs mercy. That is his first response to sin. His second response is confession. Mercy, then confession. Verses 3 through 6. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It is frequently difficult to be self-aware of your own sin. To know exactly what it is you're doing wrong. To be able to see it clearly. And David says, Something in verse 4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned, which is kind of an astounding statement because he has had an affair with Bathsheba and he has killed Uriah. David, I think you have sinned against more than just God. I think at least those two probably you have sinned against also. But I think David's point is that he knows that no matter what he's done, no matter what the consequences are of his sin, more than anything else, he has sinned against God. He has shamed his Lord. So much so that it's as if he's the only one that he's sinned against. 
But he goes on in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So it gets worse. It's not just that David has committed all these sins, all of these different transgressions, but actually from the beginning he was in need of mercy from God. He was actually born into sin, and while he was still in the womb, he was in sin. Ever seen a picture from an ultrasound? These are weird pictures. They're kind of blobby little things, and it's impossible to say that your children look cute at this point, but it takes a long time before your kids start looking cute, to be honest. But you're just trying to make out, like, can, like maybe that's the head, and you kind of see an arm. I don't know. Just imagine, and people, like, put them on their refrigerator. It's like a fun thing. Imagine seeing the ultrasound picture of your child for the first time and just, pfft, sinner. This guy. It's just totally unimpressive. But that's true. In the womb, they were conceived in sin. We are born in sin. It's not as if you are born and are this just innocent child until one day you're corrupted by the world or by your family or by who knows what, right? And so now you need mercy and forgiveness from God. From the beginning, you are entirely dependent on grace from God. That is not the natural way of mankind to be able to just be living rightly before God. And in verse 6, we get this little juxtaposition. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. We wouldn't have that by ourselves. We wouldn't have any kind of inner wisdom. We wouldn't have any kind of inner truth unless it is given to us by God. The idea of truth in the inward being brought to mind uh, when I was in high school is when President Clinton was president, and there was a whole scandal with Monica Lewinsky. He had had an affair, and he had lied about the affair, or it depends on who you ask whether or not he lied about the affair, because he had said there's nothing going on between us, and this was sort of famous because, as it turns out, there was going some, something going on between them, and they asked him about it later. Wasn't that a lie? And here's how he defended himself. This is sort of a famous saying. He said, it depends on what the definition of is is, which is quite the defense. If you ever find yourself quibbling about the definition of is, you probably just need to repent, right? Just stop everything and start praying. Telling the truth with the intention of deception is not something that honors the Lord. God delights in truth in the inward being, and that is not natural to us. Our transgressions are ever before us. We were born in sin. We were conceived in iniquity. And it is important for us to recognize that and confess it to God. This is really the beginning of the gospel here, isn't it? David's focus on mercy and confession. As it turns out, David knew that the only way to be forgiven by God was through the miracle of God's divine forgiveness. 
He couldn't be good enough. He couldn't work hard enough. It didn't matter that he was the king of Israel who were God's people. That wasn't this free pass into forgiveness and restoration from God. He needed to confess when he had done something wrong, and he needed mercy to come from God. And it is the same for us today. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter what you do. It won't Make God impressed with you. Your good works will not be a ticket into heaven. You need mercy from God. And we know now that that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in his atoning work on the cross. That Christ was our substitute on the cross. That he took our place in dying. And that he accomplished our forgiveness, faith that he accomplished our forgiveness and trust that he rose from the dead on the third day, that we worship a living Savior. David understood this, that we need mercy from God, we need to confess our sins. A third word that summarizes David's response to sin is restoration, verses 7 through 12. He wants to be restored to God. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David understood that there were consequences for his sin. There were earthly and physical consequences for it. And in fact, 2 Samuel 12 lists four different consequences for his sin that David was going to have to endure. The sword will never depart from his house. He'll constantly be at war. God will raise up evil out of his own house. His children, some of them would be evil toward him. His wives would commit adultery in sort of a public way. And the child that Bathsheba was pregnant with would die. These are serious consequences for a serious sin. And so it's not surprising in verse 8 when David is describing himself as someone who has broken bones. He is worn down and broken because of the judgments that God decreed against him. And yet what he's asking isn't really to be delivered from those judgments, but to have joy in the midst of them. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. They understood in the Old Testament the need for a clean heart. Proverbs 29 says, Who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one can say that they have a clean heart. Jeremiah 31, 33. God says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God wants them to know that there will be a day, we know that Christ accomplished this, when the law won't just be this external thing, this list of things, to, of rules to keep, but that God's law would actually be written on their hearts. They, understand it, they understood a need for a clean heart. And that's what David is asking for. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This could be potentially a frightening idea that God's Holy Spirit could be given and then taken away. It's a little different in the Old Testament. Their concept of the Old their concept of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament wasn't as developed as ours is simply because there wasn't as much revelation about him as we now have. But also the ministry of the Spirit was a little bit different in the Old Testament. David had seen the Spirit come upon Saul, the king before him, in order to empower him for kingly ministry. And he also, in 1 Samuel 16, 14, saw the Holy Spirit depart from Saul after he had sinned and come on to David as he's anointed for kingly ministry once again. So I can't help but think that that's what is on David's mind when he says, let not your Holy Spirit depart from me. He wants to still have the ministry that he had. He wants to still be an effective and godly king of the people of God. The point isn't that David might lose his salvation so much as he might lose the special anointing of the Spirit for ministry. Maybe we have a similar idea in the New Testament with Ephesians 4.30 where we're told as believers that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.19 that we can quench the Spirit. It's not as if we can lose our salvation, but our ministry can become less effective if we continue on in unrepentant sin. And so David is asking, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And then in verse 12, he says something that should sound very familiar to any of you who have been believers for a long time. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It is easy for those of us who have been believers for a long time, to lose the kind of joy that we had when we first became believers. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone recently who is a new convert that suddenly believes in Christ now for the first time. But it's this really neat thing to see how excited they are for things that we might find mundane. Just showing up to church is like, ah, I get to go to church again. They're reading their Bible every day and you're like, oh, I remember when I was super excited about reading my Bible and they're praying for everyone and they're telling everyone they know about Christ. And they are excited about the same things that we're excited about and yet they manifest it in this really joyful way. It's easy to lose the joy of salvation, I think. It's like this in other areas of life as well. Anything that is exciting now can easily become less exciting in the future. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our, our first child, my son, my dad told me that there is nothing like experiencing the world through the eyes of a child. What a neat thing to say, right? Because children are just full of enthusiasm about everything. They think it's the best. But even they get a little tired of certain things. I was hanging out with my parents actually this week. My wife and I and our kids, we went over and we were with my parents and we went out to dinner. We went to Taco Bell because we were living it up. And we're telling my kids we're going to go get cheesy roll-ups because cheesy roll-ups, right? Like, why wouldn't you get this at Taco Bell? And one of my kids says, yay! Literally, hands in the air, like super excited. And my other kid says, is this one of the Taco Bells with a Pizza Hut? 
That's what they want to know, right? Like I am like this, this cheese in a tortilla business is nothing, right? Like I'm going to need, I'm going to need some pizza or this is just a worthless evening to me. Even they can become less excited about this. And it's the same with our salvation. We should ask God to restore us to the joy of salvation when we are confronted with sin. And it's not just that we love to pursue the things of God. I think for David, he forgot the joy of purity. The joy of resisting sin. The joy of saying no to temptation and realizing that that is the Spirit's work within him and praising God for that. David's response to sin is mercy, confession, restoration, and now in verse 13, evangelism. He says, then, after I've received mercy from God, after I've confessed, after I've been restored to God, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. I love that word. It's just so big. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God, of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. This is the idea that after you have sinned, if you are responding correctly to sin, the natural habits will now turn to evangelism. When you realize, man, I have received mercy from God. I've confessed my sins. Joy has been restored to me, and so, of course, I will tell others about him. I love when my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Because the idea of this sort of carefree easiness, like I'll just... I'll just tell anyone. I'm just singing about the righteousness of God. I love to sing. I'm terrible at it, but I love to do it. I usually don't do it in front of people, and if I'm around people, I'll just mumble quietly. But when I was in seminary, they had a seminary choir. It's like 300 people in this choir. We had to sing twice a year for two different things. And I remember my very first year doing this. I was super excited to sing in the choir. We were, I don't even know, probably singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God because that's the sort of stuff we sang there. And so I'm there and I'm sitting, right? They have these different sections. I don't know how this works. I just found an empty seat. And so I sat down and I got my little book and I'm just a mighty fortress, right? I'm just singing. And we get done with the song and the choir director says, someone right around here, it's monotone. I need to clean that up. And so we start singing again. And so now I'm singing a little quieter. Oh, my gorgeous. And he stops in the middle of the song. And now he's like zeroed it in. One of you four, just send us the video. We don't need the audio. I wasn't allowed to sing in the choir. No one has done that to me here, fortunately. But frequently, people love to sing about God. Think right here, you come here and it's just this natural thing. Of course I'm going to sing about the righteousness of God. But you go out there like, am I going to, would I really tell someone about Jesus? Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe I don't want to, you know, it's at work. That's kind of weird. I don't want to ruin the relationship. I don't know. We make all these excuses. But the natural reaction to sin 
of a godly person will eventually be evangelism. And not just evangelism. That will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David, I guess, qualified as that also. David was someone who was a believer but just returned to the Lord, needed to be confronted about his sin. So it could just be that you're helping teach current believers to turn back to the Lord. But this is something that is so easy for me to ignore, to not do very much. And it seems to be the same for many people. Evangelism is just this hard thing, and sometimes you get excited to do something hard. Evangelism doesn't seem to be that. Most people just know that it's hard and are like, uh, maybe next year I'll think about doing it. I wrote a letter of recommendation for someone this week. I have to do that from time to time now. It's kind of weird. And most of the time, you're just making stuff up, stuff like that. It's like, oh, yeah, they're great, I promise. But one of the lines I wrote in this letter, I wrote that his commitment to prayer and evangelism are exemplary to me. And that was true. And you probably know someone in your life who can't help but talk to others about Christ. And we should pray that that will be us. That we would teach transgressors your ways and help them return to God. Who should be doing that? Everyone who is confronted with sin and turns to the Lord should be evangelizing like that. Mercy, confession, restoration, evangelism. Finally, humility. Humility is the final word that summarizes David's response to sin. Verse 16, we get kind of an amazing statement for the Old Testament. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Psalm 40, verse 6 says something similar. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, you, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. What a strange thing for the Old Testament to say that God doesn't delight in sacrifice, God doesn't require sacrifice, because I'm pretty sure in Leviticus and many other places, quite a bit of biblical real estate is devoted to talking about the importance of sacrifice, to explaining exactly how sacrifices are supposed to work, in what way they're supposed to be administered, what sins different sacrifices are supposed to cover. You have burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. And so all of these different types of things are being burned all the time, different animals for different sins in different situations. It's just this crazy thing. In the Old Testament, God loves barbecue. Animals are being burned all the time. And yet, here we find out you don't have to light in sacrifice. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What is going on? It took me a long, long time to realize this, but salvation works the same in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
I knew in the New Testament we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, I really for a very long time thought that they were saved by keeping the law. The law was given, right? The Ten Commandments or all those other things too with the sacrifices. And they would get to heaven by doing those things. And the Bible is very clear that that's not true. Romans 4 makes it super abundantly clear that Abraham was saved by faith. It was before he was even given the sign of circumcision or anything else. Abraham was saved by faith as, as well as everyone else in the Old Testament. But it's all throughout the Old Testament also, and I think verses like this show that very clearly, that even though God demanded all of these different sacrifices, that's not actually what he wanted. What God actually wants, verse 17 tells us, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. More than anything else, God wants us to have hearts that are humble before him, that know that they need a savior, that are truly broken over sin and look to God for mercy. Then, verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Which completes the picture, doesn't it? The point isn't that God has demanded sacrifices but doesn't want them at all. It's that God has demanded sacrifices, but it is not until your heart is right before God that those sacrifices will be pleasing to God. And it's the same for us. There are many things that are demanded of New Testament believers. But there's only one thing that is demanded of New Testament believers. Faith in Jesus Christ. But once you have faith, once your heart, in your heart, you, you trust in God as your Savior, then those good works that you do on God's behalf for the glory of God will actually be pleasing to Him. It demands that we have a heart of humility. And it's so easy to forget this. It's been great having both of my kids are in Awana now. They're old enough for that. They're in cubbies. Memorizing these verses. And I always try and trick them. My goal is always to trick them into talking about like what, how, do we, how do we get saved? Um, I, I want them to just know, have the right answer memorized all the time. And so I'll try and, I'll try and bait them. I was driving Jeremiah home from cubbies one night. And he was, he was talking about someone that died in his make-believe world. I don't even know. There's a lot of death in his dragons and swords and things. Anyway. And he talked about how they died and gone to heaven. And I said, well, how do you get to heaven? And he's, mm, no, I don't know. And I'm like, going to church? Doing the right thing? Is that what gets you to heaven? He's like, yeah, yeah. No, son, that's wrong, right? And it's like this, right, this manufactured teachable moment, right? It's just so exciting. Like, no, wrong. You got to get this. And now he knows he's not falling for it anymore. He knows, like, no, it's faith, dad, it's faith. Uh, my daughter, well, she's still working on it. We're working with her. But it is so easy to forget. We think that what God wants is sacrifice, and I just need to do good and do give up and do something for God's sake. When what he really wants is a humble heart that knows 
that it needs Christ. That it needs forgiveness, divine forgiveness that is entirely of grace. This is how David responded to sin. And this is hard. This is not natural to respond to the sin in this way. And so as with anything, anytime there is something to do, <laughs> respond to sin like this. Confess, be restored, mercy from God, evangelize, be humble. It's always great to tell someone, be humble right now. How do you do that? How do you have a humble heart when it is not humble? You pray. You pray and ask God to do this. To give you the strength and the endurance to keep working at it and by his spirit to supernaturally bring it about within you. Both of those things are what you need. 